Oftentimes, when we think about mental health or addiction, there are areas that we just can't relate to. There are some drugs that you've never tried, or some feelings or thought patterns that you have never experienced. But with disordered eating, with food, well, all of us experience that. We all have our own relationships with food. What we eat, how we eat, even why we eat, or in some cases, don't eat. Disordered eating is in its own unique category, and it's also riddled with misconceptions due to mainstream culture's constant fad diet crazes, fat shaming, and even food shaming. Today, we are exploring eating disorders and how they show up in our everyday lives so that you can tell fact from fiction. I'm Clint Malley. And I'm Marina Vadrin. And this is Real Common Treatable, where we talk about overcoming mental health and substance use challenges in simple, everyday language. Our experts today are Corey Van Horn and Abby Giesing from Omni Nutrition and Counseling. As always, let's start by unpacking what this is. What is disordered eating? First, we'll hear from Corey. I guess I like to think of disordered eating as an um, umbrella term. Oftentimes we get pigeonholed into thinking of eating disorders as like anorexia or clinically diagnostic disorders, but disordered eating actually shows up in a lot of folks that maybe don't meet diagnostic criteria for eating disorders. It could be restrictive eating, meaning like they're not, someone's not eating specific foods or like specific food groups. It could also be like over obsession of clean eating or eating healthy food. It can also be binge eating, like eating large amounts of food in one sitting. And as Abby is going to explain, oftentimes these things that might not be good for us are normalized by society. To, to that point, it's something that is very normalized and often praised in our society. So it's oftentimes overlooked and we look at like, oh, this is eating disorder. I don't do that. I don't have that, those behaviors, but there's a whole spectrum of disordered eating, um, dieting being the most common, which is, as we know, pretty, pretty normal in our society, but can be very harmful. Media often portrays one type of person who struggles with disordered eating, but the people who really struggle the most may not be who you think. I think that the stereotype is it's typically like thin white women that get eating disorders. But actually, if you look at like statistics, queer and trans folks are much higher, statistically speaking, to develop an eating disorder. I think generally we see eating disorders affect all groups of people and socioeconomic status across worldwide, really. There's also sort of myths that it's an American disease or it's an upper class issue and it's really seen across the world in many different populations. That being said, because a lot of eating disorders are affected by certain things that may impact folks differently, access to care, food insecurity, trauma, oppression, these types of things do to have an impact on someone's likelihood of developing an eating disorder. Addiction, mental health, disordered eating, they all have some stuff in common, and one of those things could be trauma. Absolutely. 
Yeah, probably similar to addiction. Eating disorders are oftentimes coping mechanisms or survival instincts that clients develop in order to just continue living, continue surviving. So eating disorder behavior helps people get through their day-to-day and manage, yeah, oftentimes trauma or marginalization or oppression or things that have contributed to them feeling like they need some kind of coping. Before you say, nah, that's not me, maybe it's better to ask, what is it like to walk in the shoes of someone struggling with an unhealthy relationship with food? Yeah, that's a good question. I think it's hard to say. Obviously, it's not a, a one-size-fits-all experience. There's there's a lot of variety in between even the spectrum of disordered eating to binge eating disorder, bulimia, anorexia, over-exercising. I think that one of the common things that I see with clients is this just mental and emotional energy being directed towards eating, restricting eating, exercise, sort of these behaviors that for a lot of folks feels like, okay, this is how I'm going to feel in control for the day, or this is how I'm going to cope or uh, make sure I'm quote unquote good today. But it ends up taking up so much. Like we have a question on our intake form of like, how many hours a day are you thinking about food? And oftentimes it's 12, 20 hours a day. Obviously that varies, but just this sort of like mental drain that we see that leaves clients in a obviously more emotionally vulnerable state where that's affecting their sleep and their relationships and their work. And so we see a lot of that trickle down. So by now you're realizing that eating disorders affect a whole lot of people, but how do you know? Like, how do you really know if it's a legitimate eating disorder? Definitely looking at trauma and trauma history. Um, which, you know, that may not always be something that's disclosed initially. That might not be something that we can always sort of look at least initially. I think it's important to look at like marginal, marginalized identities, in particular queer and trans folks, also people of color, and just the ways in which systemic racism and oppression perpetuate fat phobia and essentially, yeah, put like whiteness and thinness and heteronormativity as like the ultimate supreme ways of being and that sort of causes oppression and marginalization that then leads to potentially the development of disordered eating so i think it's really important to look at systemic factors and also keeping an open mind around we've talked about what how an eating disorder presents and yeah for example someone might come in who's been a chronic dieter that's pretty socially acceptable socially normed not something that we, we typically would look at with like red flags, but chronic dieting is like one of the main, or I think it's one of the top predictors of developing an eating disorder. And in our society, dieting is, you know, touted as just like a normal way of existing. So systems of oppression, capitalism, these things dish out real trauma. And one of the ways people cope with it is through what they eat or don't eat. And this type of trauma can start off really early in life. And I would say even with children, I worked at Children's Hospital for a long time and it was, and I think this is across the medical field, I'm not trying to put them on blast, but like the way in which we even would talk about children's weight in front of them or weigh them or give them a healthy meal option because they didn't fit in this kind of arbitrary BMI range. 
So things like that as a child and as an adult really do increase your risk of developing an eating disorder over time. I think I don't think it's four or five times more likely if you're put on a diet as a kid. And yeah, it's just become one of those things that I hope clinicians will lean towards screening and asking some of these deeper questions around what their relationship with food and exercise has been like over the lifespan. Maybe you've been following along and thinking, this is a lot like addiction. Well, yes and no. I guess my personal philosophy is that no anorexia and bulimia or any eating disorder, they're not addictions. There are definitely a lot of similarities, but there are some distinct differences that, from my perspective, would keep them out of that sort of umbrella term of addiction. I do think they're, they're all coping mechanisms and ways that people learn to survive. And that's probably the similarity between addiction and eating disorders. But food in and of itself cannot, is not an addictive substance. And therefore, there's some differences in terms of like brain chemistry when it comes to addiction versus eating disorders. Yeah. And I would say, I think where in working, we've both worked in both settings in our careers and they are sometimes treated as equivalent. And I think obviously what Corey said about brain chemistry being different, we need food to survive. It's not something we can become addicted to. It doesn't deteriorate the brain in the same way that a drug or alcohol might. Right. For starters, you can't get sober from food. You need it to survive. Could you imagine if alcoholics had to have alcohol every day without drinking too much? That would be super tough. And we can't treat them the same way as like an abstinence model or even sometimes saying eating in moderation is not, we have to look at the underlying relationship to food and even like the mental restriction aspect. Our brains are very smart. And even if we are mentally restricting ourselves, that can cause a fear of famine in a way that will push us to eat past our internal intuitive uh, place that we would stop normally. On the other side of the spectrum, some people are super aware of their relationship with food. They just know that they have a problem. But the tricky thing is, is that we can also label things as problems when they are just a normal part of life. I'll just add to that too. Oftentimes clients will come in with a self-diagnosed food addiction or feeling like they can't control themselves around food. And so I think it's important when working with clients that we really validate that experience and validate that it does feel addictive and that oftentimes they have they have this feeling that feels like they are addicted to, oftentimes people say they're addicted to sugar. But what we know through research and through science is that the body needs sugar. Brains and bodies are going to essentially crave things that we need. And oftentimes restriction or like when people aren't allowing themselves to eat carbs or they're not allowing themselves to eat sugar, then it's going to lead to this you know, sort of intense feeling or intense craving towards that specific food or that specific food group, which then feels a lot like an addiction um, or addictive behavior. But the way that we would treat that is actually in introducing more of that food rather than like abstaining from it. Think about exposure therapy. To get over a fear of spiders, you hold one in your hand. Treatment with food can be similar. 
Except, let me be clear, you are not eating spiders. You are eating foods that you have deemed bad for you. Yeah, I think we do end up doing some exposure therapy with clients, around, especially around food that they are afraid of or feel like they can't trust themselves around and working through, like, how do you tolerate that anxiety? How can you, like, tune into your body and sit with that feeling? So I guess in that way, sometimes it does feel a little bit like exposure related. So disordered eating has some similarities to addiction, but it's definitely not the same. But that doesn't mean that they aren't besties sometimes. It's actually pretty common to see substance use paired with disordered eating. Yeah. So oftentimes we talk about substance use disorders and eating disorders as like whack-a-mole where like a client might be in treatment for their substance use disorder and therefore they're abstaining from any substance use. And then we start to see signs of a developing eating disorder or even they may be going back to their eating disorder. That might look like restriction. I, when I was working in the addictions world, I saw a lot of folks that really poured themselves into exercise and like being healthy. And there's, there's a fine line between that being a health promoting behavior and it being actually detrimental. So I think that's something to definitely look out for as addictions professionals. And then, yeah, we will, we see that too with eating disorders when somebody's eating disorder is, is more under control than substance use stuff might be popping up. They are definitely interconnected in terms of being used as coping mechanisms and swapping each other, swapping behaviors out for each other. Yeah. And on the flip side, I've definitely seen clients use substances as a way to cope or engage in their eating disorder behaviors. So they work together in some ways. There's a term called drunkorexia, which is often essentially like people drinking in order to maintain restriction or using alcohol as like a means to aid in their restriction. And, and I guess that would probably apply to other substances as well. Okay, so we shouldn't be quick to self-diagnose that we have an eating disorder. But disordered eating is super common. So what is the line? How do you know when your relationship with food has become unhealthy? That's a really tough question. I don't know that it would... Yes, of course, the individual is the expert of themselves. And I think we need to trust that as clinicians. And... It gets messy in that diet culture and fat phobia and ex- extreme exercise or clean eating are culturally accepted things. So I do think it's the clinician's role to also intervene or at least do, you know, some educating around what could potentially be disordered. And then also, yeah, talking with the client around, is this feeling like an obsession? Does this feel like it's compulsive or impulsive in any way? And yeah, I think just assessing out like, what is this behavior being used for? So it's going to look different in every person, which makes it more challenging to pinpoint. Yeah, I think I'll speak to some of the things you can just notice as a clinician or just what Corey said, and also how is it affecting their self-esteem, self-worth? How sustainable are these behaviors for them? What are they doing? What are these behaviors doing for them? Are they distracting them, taking up time, community, a self-esteem building? Like there's a, it's a hard, it's a gray area. Like Clint said, like we, we struggle in the gray area. And so it's important for us to be educated on 
that line and help them to understand what this is doing for them and if it feels or is ultimately healthy for them in their in their recovery and their life. Are there signs to look for or not look for when spotting disordered eating for you or a loved one? I think there are some things you can look for. I think this is a question we get a lot and our, I mean, my personal life too, for sure. I will say up front, we definitely want to steer clear of using weight as an official marker of someone's health. A lot of times that's why many go undiagnosed is because there's this idea that there's a look to an eating disorder. So we want to focus on the behaviors. Like you said, rigidity and thinking is a big one. Um, noticing is this person less flexible in their food choices, times a day that they can eat, who they will eat with, are they isolating themselves during meals? Do you notice eating in secrecy? Those are just some of the behaviors off the top of my head. And then obviously with exercise, like how much time a day, again, with the rigidity of that, and then are they getting injured a lot? Are they pushing their body past what their body can handle? I would add to that, like, if people are avoiding social situations that involve food or if someone's community and connection are impaired because of their need to not eat or avoid eating situations, that's definitely something to look out for. Do you know that person that only eats broccoli and chicken breast because it's healthy? They avoid going out to eat with friends. They never miss a gym day. Society holds these folks up as disciplined idols, but this can also be a sign of disordered eating too. One of the questions I'll ask sometimes is, well, how do you feel if you don't get to make it to the gym or you can't choose where you go out to eat ahead of time? Assessing for like how these situations cause emotional distress when things are changed at the last minute or there's not that control. The thing that kind of connects all of this is anxiety. So does food make you anxious? Yeah, like our bodies are smart. It sends us anxiety is communication. It's that either whether it's actually happening or it's a, a past experience that our nervous system thinks is still happening, it's signaling to our brain that something's not safe or, or right or available. And our only job as humans is to stay alive. And so food is a huge part of that. And that's why it's important to ask more questions like, wouldn't have known about your childhood, wouldn't have like understood that's where some of those things come from without really digging into your relationship with food from a systemic lens. I think it points to food insecurity, Abby mentioned earlier, and food scarcity and like how socioeconomic status can actually be something that potentially contributes to the development of an eating disorder. Because yeah, food scarcity is, it basically is communicating to the body that there's a famine and the body's response to a famine is to like, like you were saying, take as much food as we can when we have access to it and hold on to it for dear life. So some, yeah, most all eating disorder behavior is extremely intuitive and actually like really makes a lot of sense. Another tricky thing about eating disorders is that many clinicians don't want to deal with it. They might think that it's too complicated, but this is kind of a problem because everyone eats, right? I get the sense that a lot of clinicians feel like 
there it's just such a different thing to treat that they need really highly specialized training for it. And while I do think that there's education and work that a clinician needs to do to be able to ethically and safely treat eating disorders, I wish that it wasn't so feared because there's so many dual di- we're we're always dealing with dual diagnosis in my opinion. Like there's never just one thing happening. And so that can be a little understandable. There are things you need to know and be equipped to do, but a little bit frustrating that it feels like we're so separate from the rest of the world. And I will say, like Abby said, for people who have like diagnost- meet diagnostic criteria for eating disorders, it's probably important that they do see someone who, is, who does have more specialization. And most people in our society have disordered eating. So I think for clinicians to be at least educated and, and informed enough to screen for disordered eating, recognize disordered eating when it's showing up in their office is re- really important because it's much more widely prominent than people realize. So, yeah. And I think, again, like Abby said, yes, specialty education is probably important. And I think clinicians are more capable than they often realize they are in helping folks with eating disorders or disordered eating. Now, I'm guilty of throwing around the terms disordered eating and eating disorder as synonyms, but there is a difference, right? An eating disorder is like very diagnostic. Um, So if you're looking at the DSM and looking through diagnostic criteria for anorexia or bulimia or binge eating disorder, or what have you. Yeah, that's an eating disorder is when someone meets those criteria. I would say by and large, there are many folks who have disordered eating. So maybe don't meet all the criteria for a full-blown eating disorder diagnosis, but show many signs of disordered eating. So I guess I would just say it's like the difference in, you know, whether someone meets the diagnostic criteria or not. But it doesn't isn't something that should be treated and acknowledged. We also need to mention that substance use, especially alcohol, can really complicate this whole disordered eating thing. There are so many intersections, like some clients might use alcohol as a way to help them restrict. So like drinking rather than eating, like drinking calories or getting all the calories from alcohol rather than having any food. I've also seen in clients like using alcohol as a way to help them purge. So if someone's using purging behavior, then like alcohol might be a means to assist in that. How else do you see it show up? I think some of what we've already talked about, just in the emo- what people get emotionally from alcohol may end up helping with their eating disorder as well, whether it's to make them feel numb, to help them feel outside of their body so they don't have to feel their body or notice their body, to be social with other people and eat comfortably around other people and then whether they go purge or over exercise or do something the next day varies but I think it it can yeah function as a way to either give permission to eat or to then help restrict in eating and just to help the emotional impacts that like alcohol does for people it just varies for what alcohol is doing for the person If you're like me and you feel like you were just plugged into the matrix and learned a whole lot and you want to keep learning from Corey and Abby, 
there's some awesome ways that you can stay connected to them. Yeah, you can visit our website, which is omnicounselingandnutrition.com, where you can read about all of our amazing staff members. We have dietitians and therapists on staff. We also have some blog posts there um, and some more about our mission. We're also on Facebook and Instagram. Our Instagram handle is Omni Counseling Nutrition. And so we share a lot of great accounts to follow if you're looking to learn more about this and maybe even do a little bit of a like timeline, social media redirect to have some more body, uh, body positive. Listen, y'all, this whole disordered eating thing, it's real, but it's also more common than you think. And most of all, it's treatable. All my love. And we'll see you on the next one.